0: Hey everybody, Andrew here. I am really excited about the opportunity to introduce you to a dear friend of mine and an amazing scholar, Dr. Ben Williams. Um, We have so much to talk about with this amazing individual, but as usual, I want to start with his formal bio and then just launch right in into what I'm sure will be just a really rich time. So Dr. Ben Williams is an intellectual historian focused on the Indian religions and history of Shaiva Tantra. He's received extensive training in Indian philosophy, literature and aesthetics in Sanskrit sources. Ben received a BA in religious studies from the University of Vermont, a master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School and completed his PhD in the Department of South Asian Studies at Harvard University. He's currently serving as the assistant professor of Hinduism at Europa University. Ben also serves on the academic advisory council of the Mukta Boda Indological Research Institute, which is dedicated to the preservation of the scriptural and philosophical texts of classical India. Ben's doctoral thesis is on revelation and the figure of the tantric guru and the writings of Abhinavagupta, an eminent intellectual figure of medieval Kashmir. Building upon the study, one of his current research projects is charting the transmission of tantric traditions in South India that are indebted to non-dual Shaiva teachings and lineages that originally flourished in Kashmir. So Ben, my dear friend, thank you so much for taking time out of your heavy teaching and writing schedule to, to join us in our little nightclub. It's just a delight to have you.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to be with you all and i um, looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah. Um, likewise, I, I have to share with our audience that Ben has been an absolute treasure trove of information um, for me over the last year and a half since I got to know this amazing man. He He's always sending me these unbelievable texts from the really the heart of the non-dual Shaiva, contrary tradition, Kashmir Shaivism, and introduced me to a, a, a vast body of wisdom that I'm almost embarrassed to admit I had very little familiarity with. And the more Ben turns me on to this, the more I'm just blown away. Um, And the confluence, and I'm sure Ben and I will be chatting a little bit about this, the confluence between this kind of non-dual Shaiva tradition, which is really the origin of Buddhist tantric teachings, the parallels between that root source and what I spent most of my life studying with in terms of Tibetan Buddhism, Um, it's just extraordinary so we have a lot to talk about but then just for starters um, talk to us a little bit about what what Shaiva Tantra is and whether in fact it's redundant to talk about it as non-dual Shaiva Tantra um, because this is something perhaps maybe new to our listeners and then also its connection to what perhaps is more famously known these days as Kashmir Shaivism so can we start with some Definitions and kind of infrastructure um, approaches to this before we launch into some details?
1: Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Um, it's it's not redundant to say Nandu Shaiva Tantra because the history of Shaiva Tantra um, was for actually many centuries um, a history of a tradition which presupposed that the deities, the tantric deities that you know, revealed the scriptures, and that one worshipped through various tantric liturgies, or processes of ritual worship, were in fact external to the practitioner. And so, the early history of Shaiva Tantra is in fact dualistic, for the most part, with a few important exceptions. Um, and another thing about the early, earlier Shaiva tantric tradition is that it's much less focused on philosophy and much more engrossed in ritual and practice and so although we can kind of tease out this dualistic orientation the scriptures themselves are not actually that interested in hair-splitting metaphysical explorations and discussions Um, but nonetheless this kind of dualistic orientation animates them Um, Again, there's a couple passages in the earliest Shavita Tantras that, that do kind of uh, seem to suggest a non-dual view, but we can say that generally speaking, they're dualistic. Um, before I, I speak about the emergence of non-duality, I want to make a really important caveat, though. Um, although although these traditions are for the most part dualistic, a fundamental practice in all of them, which is really a central metaphor of tantra, broadly speaking, is identification with the deity. Mm. And so even if these uh, deities were understood to be uh, external to the tantric initiate and deities that must be gratified or pleased in order to kind of bestow grace, uh, liberation, etc., um, all practice begins with a ritual identification with the deity and that identification with the deity is an empowering practice and it's seen as a preliminary for all tantric ritual, uh, a purifying preliminary. So this, because there's a lot of this this deep emphasis on identification with tantric deities, it's often confusing to to really see what the orientation is, sometimes in the earliest tradition. Um, Okay. So that's a little bit about that. Uh, should yeah. I move? Should I move to the emergence of non-duality? I hope that's kind of clear. No, that's,
0: that's super helpful. But I want to um, right away talk just a little bit about deity principle, and and really maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and how this relates to Shaiva. Like, who who is this uh, this entity? Because, you know, in the Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist tradition, Ben, as you probably know, some scholars. Go so far as to say that a th- about a third of tantric or vajrayana Buddhism is actually devoted to deity um, practice, um,
1: mm-hmm. right.
0: through, uh, you know, yinam practice and deity principle. So right. it is an absolutely core ingredient of, of Tibetan tantric Buddhism. So talk to us a little bit about deity principle and um, how uh, Shiva actually Shiva fits into that. Who is sure. it? who is the- <laughs>
1: Entity. <laughs> yeah, who is this, Shiva? You're right. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's actually an illuminating contrast looking at Shaiva Tantric traditions and Buddhist Tantric traditions around this question of deity principle. In the Shaiva traditions, um, we, have, uh, you know, we have a background in, in the broader Indian religions of a kind of focus at a certain moment on really three main deities. Shiva, Vishnu, and the goddess. And often the goddesses um, have forms which are consorts of either Shiva or Vishnu, or there's traditions where the goddess is kind of independent. And those traditions are called Shakta, devoted to Shakti. Um, so in these, in these earlier traditions, you know, in, in the more public forms of Shaivism, you know, Shiva is there's all these myth cycles about Shiva. You know, he has, he has a wife, he has children. He goes through periods of being a yogi and an ascetic. He often lives in the wilds. Um, there's, there's all these stories about this um, form of Shiva who often has different, you know, anthropomorphic forms. So his skin is blue, he has snakes, he wears an elephant hide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In Shaiva tantric traditions from the very start, the very notion of deity shifts from those earlier traditions Mm -hmm. and the deity is understood. uh, of course the deity can always assume a form, but the supreme form of the deity in tantric traditions is actually the mantra. Mm -hmm. So the, the highest form of the deity is this kind of mantric form or this form of pure sound. And this relationship between deities and mantras, the idea that the deity is the embodiment of the mantra, is really vital for understanding tantric practice. Because when you intone a mantra, or if you deposit a mantra, or if you repeat a mantra, you're actually invoking the very sound form of the deity. So that supreme sound. Is the source of how that deity then takes on a form and and creates the universe, or reveals the Shiva scriptures or the wisdom teachings of these you know these revelatory wisdom teachings? So that's this is a very important distinction. Um, another just general point about the deity principle is that, as I just alluded to. Shiva, in a Shiva tradition, Shiva is the source of the creation of the universe, the sustaining of that universe and the dissolution of that universe. Mm. And Shiva is also the agent of grace, or the kind of power of awakening. Um, and and also one more act of Shiva, which is often listed in these five acts, is also the power of concealment. And the cause, therefore, of ignorance, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so concealment and revelation, or ignorance and revelation, or grace um, and, and knowledge. So the you could say that uh, Shiva in these traditions is a, a creator deity um, involved in, in the creative process. How that happens... Differ[s] according to different Shiva traditions. In some traditions, Shiva is simply the efficient cause, and and is actually separate from the world. It kind of instigates the unfolding process of creation, mm-hmm. but is a separate reality. And that's in these more dualistic traditions. In other traditions, Shiva is both the efficient cause and the material cause, meaning it's the rea- it's the kind of the the prime matter. Or, the very material that manifests as and expresses as the universe, and that you see that more in non dual traditions um, okay so so then
0: is it fair to say that it is only in the non dual um, Shiva Tantra traditions, and this could then maybe tie us back into Kashmir Shaivism, um, in that my understanding is that Kashmir Shaivism does principally represent the non dual trajectory, but is it fair to say then? that the deity principle becomes more of an archetype, in other words, less theistic and dualistic and more internalized as kind of energetics um, that really are invoked in in a certain sense with things like the recitation of mantra. Um, Is that a fair thing to say that it is in the non-dual Shaiva Tantras that the deity principle becomes archetypal and that therefore more in a certain sense immediate and accessible and
1: esoteric? absolutely yeah that's all a very uh clear way of 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 kind of marking that shift that the deity becomes understood as a principle of consciousness um, which is not separate from our very nature and so you could say that is archetypal but there's there's a there's a major shift with the emergence of non-dual traditions it should be said that even in the dualistic traditions although shiva is seen as separate um we are all no- every soul has a shiva nature mm-hmm. so uh and every soul has this kind of implicit omniscience and omnipotence and and therefore is kind of equal to shiva or similar to shiva so even in the dualistic traditions you have a very radical empowered notion of the very nature of the soul or the self however um with the non-dual traditions and maybe now i can just Take that invitation and dive right in. Does that sound good? Perfect. Um, with non-dual traditions, uh, we, have, we have the emergence of an idea that the plurality of selves, the plurality of perceivers or beings in this entire world, the actual manifest world itself, and the deity are all dynamic expressions of one consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that consciousness is what we call the deity and there's a complete continuum between that individual experience and the world, the individual self in the world. And so this emerges in a tradition that's called the Kula Marga Mm -hmm. and it's in the Kula Marga where it it emerges out of the traditions where the goddess really rises to this the supreme deity actually and Mm -hmm. shiva is somewhat subordinated so they're shaiva traditions but they're focused more on the feminine the power aspect it's in those traditions which are the actually similar to buddhist tantra you know where you have the traditions of the dakinis and the yoganis or the yogani tantras they're the traditions that are like the furthest away from the mainstream They're the most transgressive. They're the most radical. It's within those traditions that you have what we can call the internalization of the deities. And so it's the internalization of Shiva as this kind of all pervasive consciousness that permeates everything and transcends it that, that what it permeates as well. But it's it, there's really an emphasis on the internalization of the goddesses on the powers of consciousness. In this, cow, in this kula marga this new path of the kula the kula means um the goddess clan
0: mm.
1: so the the clan of, of of these mother goddesses which have these retinues of yoginis or these kinds of power these semi-divine beings so this the kula also uh has a it has an, a, han, a homonym another meaning uh-huh. which is the body And so there's this idea that the body now is the totality of these powers and the, and another meaning of Kula is totality. And so what happens is that there's this complete, uh, internalization of the entire universe of this, these earlier goddess traditions. And they're all now seen as animating the the practitioner's body, which is now a microcosm of that macrocosm.
0: That's fantastic, Ben, because this is exactly as, as you probably know, this is the central tenet, or one of the central tenets of what's referred to as the king of all Tantras in Buddhism, which is the Kalachakra Tantra, mm. as within so without and, and and I have to throw this into the mix, because I find it so incredibly beautiful from from a, a kind of a Buddhist approach to this kind of discovery is that the the further we go into ourselves, the less we find of ourselves, and the more we find of others, to the point that Mm -hmm. when we go so Mm -hmm. deeply into the very core of our being, we end up discovering that we are nothing, but in so doing, we simultaneously discover we're everything. And so in the in most beautiful mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. not just a labyrinth, we walk into the center of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We it, The labyrinth also doubles as a Mobius strip. And so as you go to the very mm-hmm. center of mm-hmm. your being, you find yourself popping out as the cosmos. Your, your body is replaced mm-hmm. by the universe. Absolutely. And so that to me yeah. sounds utterly resonant with what you're talking about here.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's not simply that the, the macrocosm is re-envisioned as the body. It's rather the, the body in one's consciousness becomes a portal for starting to perceive the, the vast greater world as all a part of who we are, as a rising kind of within our awareness. And so um, in the uh, Ishwar Pratyabhigna Karika, Utpaladeva says you start to see the universe as your body the entire universe is your body. Um, meaning it's like, it's all integrally related to who we are in this in this radically expanded notion of self. And that does, you know, necessarily involve the kind of the smaller thresholds or the kind of exclusive crystallized identities that we've held and cherished for so long to dissolve and to a certain extent, or at least to be kind of included in a much broader range of an emergent sense of self and a emergent affinity with all things.
0: Yeah, that's really great. I I want to come back to one thing before we 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 flesh out with this because you're pinging on so many incredibly provocative topics here. One thing I want to clarify for our audience that may be a little bit unfamiliar with things like deity principle, um, deity yoga, and the like, and, and that is that it's incredibly easy in fact, almost inevitable at first, and I think this this is, of course, why it starts um, provisionally with a dualistic approach to to anthropomorphize and to reify these deities. And Mm. I want to just have you uh, speak a little bit about that, because, you know, in in the Buddhist tradition, when one engages in these deity practices, as you know, Ben, it's a twofold fundamental practice, which is um, one, of course, is the recitation of, of the deity's mantra, which I love when you say that really is the essence of the deity. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But the other component, of course, is is visualization. Mm-hmm. And, and what one teacher once told me, really beautiful, um, about the subtleties and the nuances of actual visualization practice, and how he said how he said that cartoon cartoon visualization leads to cartoon realization (laughs) and so therefore help help us step outside of the inevitable cartoon relationship to these because people Mm will see a picture of deities like shiva
1: and they think oh you
0: know this this thing is like frozen in space out there like some like like some doll." so talk to us a little bit about the actual application in addition to mantra recitation Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. visualization practice and how to activate this archetypal energy within us
1: sure well you know i mentioned this kind of this shift from a more ritualistic uh, a pro, uh kind of orientation in these tantric traditions to a focus on kind of non-dual knowing or, or gnostic insight or kind of you know mystical forms of sudden awakening um, that that really happens with the non-dual tradition nonetheless um absolutely the kind of the fundament of tantric practice which kind of bridges both of those is working with mantra and working with visualization um you know this is a kind of the bread and butter of of tantric uh sadhana um with and they can be done on many levels so like similarly visualization can be done superficially with a lot of you know pre prefab notions about what the deity is and a certain kind of caricature of this deity and an experience of being separate from that reality. Similarly, mantra can be practiced in in ways where you're just rotely repeating it versus attuning oneself to its intrinsic, inherent, natural vibrancy as a kind of the luster and um, pulsation of consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. So with visualization, I mean, one thing I was thinking of as you were speaking There's a number of different words for this. One is bhavana. And bhavana is a very rich Sanskrit word, which has this sense of not only bringing something into being, that's kind of the sense of kind of constructing uh, the reality of this deity, but also having this relationship with what you're imagining, which is deeply empathetic. There's a sense of uh, a deep, feeling or a deep empathetic relationship that emerges with what you're visualizing. And in tantric traditions, you know, when when a mandala is revealed that has been animated with mantras and therefore with deities, there's there's a number of ways in which in the text is described that you actually see these deities. And that can lead to, you know, a number of different reactions, like your hair is standing on end, a sense of wonder. So I, I think one thing is, there's a couple of things. One is, what is your understanding of deity as you do these practices? And the second is, how, how deep is your capacity to empathetically engage and generate these deities and have a relationship with them? Yeah. And 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 how nuanced is the understanding behind that? Are you doing it as a sense of being a small entity or are you beginning with identification with the deity as the platform for the practice as well?
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And I I love that interjection then. That's super important. That you know, one of the ways um, I work with this practice, and it, it mm-hmm. obviously it, it, a synonym for it, you t- uh, pinged on this, is generation stage practice, which relates beautifully mm-hmm. to the term bhavana. You're actually generating mm-hmm. the deity and therefore actualizing it. But I, I often emphasize for myself and others that, again, it's very easy to misconstrue visualization as a purely kind of cerebral cognitive event, where it's just as much so, uh, and of course this isn't a word, but you'll totally get it, it's equally feelingization, mm-hmm. equally tuning into this this visceral, somatic, embodied, empathetic component. Mm. That's where the deity really comes to life within you, and then you fundamentally realize you are the deity. And and so, yeah, exactly for, for our listeners, I have to throw in just very briefly how this ties into um, kind of the mid-range dream yoga practices. Mm. Is that what? we are referring to here with generation stage or deity yoga practice is something that can be uh, practiced um, in dream yoga with extraordinary potency because in the dream state, of course, mind becomes reality. And as the the mind is shaped, formed, brought into being in the domain of the dream state, um, you can arise as the deity in an avenue that is um, more direct and immediate than one can actualize in so-called waking reality. And, and this mm-hmm. is of enormous importance in um, what are called the Bardo teachings, where mm. fundamentally one of the principal antidotes, if you believe in this sort of thing, that after one transitions out of a physical form into the, the after-death Bardo states, one of the principal remedies that one can do to negotiate the Bardo's is actually to arise as the deity. Mm. Uh, and then go through with that uh, kind of fearless kind of embodiment that then, of course, can guide you towards more volitional incarnation. Mm. And so I wanted to throw that into the mix and come back to one technical thing. And then I want to turn all this incredibly rich topic into really practical applications. Um, But before we go there, I want to just ask you this, Ben. When you talk about um, Shaiva, Shiva as the all-pervasive you know, imminent and transcendent consciousness. What, what immediately comes to mind is, is of course, what philosophers refer to as monism. But I want to talk to you about the subtle difference between monism and non-duality. Well, how do you see those two? Because one is an affirmation, one is a non-affirming negation. And I find myself a little bit squeamish when anything is affirmed, even a monistic consciousness. I, I actually prefer a more <laughs> propangakamajamaka approach of, right of deconstruction and non-affirming negation. So talk to us again, this is a little bit subtle, but we have a pretty <laughs> sophisticated listeners in our audience, Okay. how does this land with you and um, titrate those two terms out for us in relationship to um, non-dual Shaiva Tantra?
1: Sure, well, I think there is, there is a different emphasis in Shaiva Tantra, in non-dual Shaiva Tantra than we see in non-dual teachings in Buddhism. Um, so, I mean, it would be interesting to just tease this out together. Um, you know, there is a sense of monism, um, but it's, it's a sense of monism where the, the one reality is it's a dynamic, creative consciousness here in the non-dual teachings, right? Mm -hmm. And that consciousness is described as an agent of creation. And what it means to be an agent is to have sovereignty, or freedom. That goes back to the panini. What an agent of action is, is one who's independent of the action. Mm -hmm. And this, in non-dual Shaivism, which comes to be called Kashmir Shaivism, even though there were dualistic traditions in Kashmir, so it's Mm -hmm. a bit of a misnomer. But in non-dual Shaivism, which we refer to as Kashmir Shaivism uh, in a popular sense, um, there's this Beautiful teaching called Swa Vada, and it's really the doctrine of radical freedom. Mm-hmm. And there's the idea that there's there's no necessity impinging upon consciousness from outside of it. That it's it's completely self effulgent and self creating, and it creates uh, just because it's its very nature to create. And what creating means is self-differentiating into this manifold universe. Mm-hmm. And part of what being an agent is, is having this power. And, part, and it's actually, this goes back to our, our question about visualization. Um, this power is described as a kind of creative form of imagination, that this consciousness is creatively imagining this universe and becoming it at the very same time and it's it's through this agency which is described as three distinct powers in Abhinavagupta's tradition the power of kind of creative intentionality shakti, the power of cognition and the power of action and so in a certain sense we are being visualized by consciousness <laughs> And so when we visualize deities, that we're actually, <laughs> we're participating within consciousness's natural ability to create and to visualize and to imagine ad infinitum. Um, that, I, I, th- I feel like this, this is actually how the Shaiva traditions differentiate themselves from um, Advaita Vedanta, mm-hmm. is that they describe this consciousness is Aishwarya or Maheshwarya as, as having this kind of nature of being an agent and actually being this and being dynamic, being the source of all action, being the source of all cognition, being the source of all desire or all intention. And for, for Advaita Vedanta, their kind of form of non-dualism, what Brahman, what the absolute reality is, is a reality that's forever beyond change and action. It's immutable. And since it's beyond action, therefore, it's, it's a way of saying, this is how you go beyond karma, right? The kind of being enmeshed in, in cause and effect in all of the conditioning that falls out from that. And the Shaiva response is actually no. There's a deep continuity between consciousness and the world. Beautiful. And so therefore, there's this kind of radical imminence in their understanding of non-duality. And that that this reality, it it threads through everything, it permeates everything, it expresses everything in the same way that an artist creates.
0: Yeah, that that is so well said, my friend. And and I'm I'm just going to throw this in for the Buddhist listeners in the group. This is, I think, highly um, resonant with what the Buddhists refer to as the teachings of the trikaya and the, in the summary being not the dharmakaya, um, but svabhavakakaya, the complete incorporation quite literally mm. of this foundational source into a uh, manifestation altogether. But before we, we have, we lose too many people on the side of the road here, Ben, because I, I mean, I could go on like this for <laughs> hours with you, my friend. Sure. I want to do two things to bring it, a little bit more to earth for certain people where these non-dual teachings may be a little bit of a stretch, and uh, maybe bring you back in six months or a year where we can return and uh, go even deeper into this stuff because there's mm. there's so many places we can take the topics that we've landed on. But two things here. One is you've you've situated this thing incredibly elegantly, how Kashmir Shaivism relates to Advaita Vedanta. Let's take it back even a little bit farther. and and talk uh, briefly about how this relates to what most people associate with hindu thought which of course is yoga sutras and the work of patanjali Mm. um so situate that within the context of what we're talking about here where in terms of the flow chart um help people Mm -hmm. orient what we're talking about yeah yeah. a little bit about patanjali's incredible work and and the limitations
1: Mm -hmm. of that work sure yeah so potentially um as some of the listeners may be aware, follows the, the philosophy of Sankhya, uh, which is a dualistic philosophy. And Patanjali's teaching um, is a teaching of liberation. And how liberation is understood is um, you have you have a kind of self called Purusha, which is pure consciousness. It, it's immutable, it's unchanging, and It's a witnessing consciousness. It's described as a seer. And what it's watching is another, the other main reality in Sankhya metaphysics and also for Patanjali, which is called Prakriti. Now, Prakriti is often translated as nature, but that's a mistranslation. It's really the manifestation of all mind and matter because it includes the intellect. It includes the faculty of attention, the manas. It includes all the senses, and it also includes, like actual, the elements in the material world. That uh, in in Sankhya or in, for Patanjali, that uh, manifestation of mind and matter is actually insentient. <laughs> yes. And what per, this witnessing consciousness is is pure sentience. Now, the, the reason we need yoga. <laughs> it's because there's a problem. There's a contact between these two. And this pure consciousness has identified with the manifestation of mind and matter, i.e. what it is not, right? Like a separate ontological reality. And it's through this misidentification, which is described as the root klesha, avidya, and here potentially is drawing on the language of early Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, which he's borrowing a lot from, uh, is deeply indebted to, but yet, his metaphysics are sankhya. Um, there's basically uh, that's the that misidentification of pure consciousness with mind and matter, is what keeps uh, is what you know moves the entire wheel of samsara. And what liberation is then is when through yogic practice, there's a kind of uh, honing in of of attention, this cultivation of one pointness, one pointedness which then allows uh, for the intellect to be able to penetrate through prakriti and see its kind of internal structure and through that form of seeing that discerning then then there's a kind of letting go of this tendency to identify with it and finally this individual purusha this witnessing consciousness comes to rest in its own nature and that's described as kaivalya, which is, uh, which can actually be translated as aloneness because the purusha has disembedded from the prakriti. Now to tie this to Shaivism, um, yeah. any any questions before I move forward?
0: No, I think, I mean, gosh, the, the synopsis you're giving here is just brilliant. So yeah, run okay. with that.
1: So tying this to Shaivism, first of all, Shiva Tantra looks back on yoga and Sankhya and it draws on it a great deal. But it and it it even acknowledges many Shiva traditions acknowledge that that resting into witnessing consciousness is in fact a certain degree of liberation. It's it's you know there is merit to it. However, one of the problems with it is that there's there's this notion of many witnessing consciousnesses. So Andrew, you have your own purusha. I have my own my own purusha, right? Yep. So uh, in Sankhya, uh, our purushas are qualitatively the same, but quantitatively distinct, <laughs> right? So f- from a Shaiva perspective, the purusha is kind of encompassed or contracted or individuated. So it's it's kind of like a, uh, it's not yet a fully liberated form of consciousness. It's individuated, right? And they see it and, you know, they, they build upon Sankhya metaphysics, this idea of the tattvas, um, the kind of principles of reality or the levels of reality. So the the Purusha is the 25th Tattva and, the, and Shiva Tattva, which is the true nature of consciousness, is the 36th. And for Abhinavagupta, he adds a 37th, in some cases a 38th. So what you have with the Shaiva metaphysics is a kind of uh, a building upon the architecture of Sankhya metaphysics. And so as you kind of move down the tattvas, that's how reality looks from that vantage point. And when consciousness looks through the eyes of Purusha at that vantage point, it discloses a distinctive experience of the universe, which is valid from that perspective. However, it's, that's all extrinsic to a kind of a, a more liberated understanding of what consciousness is. Um, and so there's a, some really interesting critiques of both uh, sankhya and of patanjali in fact abhinavagupta critiques patanjali in a really interesting way another thing about sankhya and Patanjali it's it's an ascetic tradition meaning it's about renouncing the world and renouncing a householder life and becoming a celibate so there's a kind of parallel with monastic forms of buddhism in that sense and so there's this idea that you have to draw your senses away in in from the world and the world itself as an obstacle that must be renounced, right? Yeah, and and a lot of the practices about even about one pointed focus are kind of like trying to corral the mind to fo- to yogically focus and to have this mastery. Abhinavagupta sees that as kind of reinforcing contraction, because. The, if the true nature of consciousness and who we are is already all pervasive, in order to like, you can't, you, you can't start from a sense of being small and individual and, and try to leverage and control the mind to somehow uh, stimulate your awareness of all pervasive consciousness, right? That's the wrong direction. Right. <laughs> so there's, he has a really stunning critique of Patanjali's yoga, which I recently translated. Um, I'd be happy to share it with you, but...
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 totally 100%. But here's, here's where I think we should go with this, because it's yeah. so rich, but I think one potential near enemy of what we're doing here, of course, is, is the ivory tower approach. Um, and <laughs> we have to start with a view this incredibly elegant map. But yeah. let's, Ben, let's transition um, both personally and then generally into, yeah. okay, so what? How can we take this unbelievable body of wisdom and apply it into our modern lives? What what is the applicability? So now we'll speak mm-hmm. specifically, to, um, you know, to non Shaiva tantra Kashmir Shaivism, mm-hmm. which arguably, like with Mahamudra and Dzogchen, we could say is is perhaps the highest of all the, the the Hindu schools. And if they're not, please correct me on that. But how can we use this incredible view, this incredible reservoir of wisdom, bolt it into modern life? And let's really bolt it, my friend. Let's take these teachings and, in this uh, current worldwide Bardo of the COVID virus, how can we use this skill set and the practices that they invite
1: to help us work with what's happening in the world today? So, you know. I'm, I'm excited to, to do this with you, to explore this. Um, as you know, I'm a scholar practitioner. So um, my relationship to these traditions is one of, um, a, it's based on a recognition of their enduring value. And in fact, um, I, I feel like we have so much to learn from them <laughs> that in, in many ways they can be radically and deeply liberating for, our, for modern life. And I think part of the reason is, is because they incorporate the entire world of experience in their, you know, we're speaking about this imminence, that these teachings um, see the world not as an obstacle or something to be transcended, but something to be engaged through different forms of awakening in a very participatory approach. And so I actually think whether or not they're the highest in the history of, (laughs) you know, that's, that's a bit of a sectarian judgment, sure. uh, of course they think they're the highest <laughs> <Right. Of> course, <laughs> and I might think that they're like the most elegant and sophisticated, but i it's difficult to state that objectively or something um nonetheless they're they're in many ways arguably the most apropos for modern life because one of the distinctive characteristics of modernity in the kind of in our orientation, whether we recognize it or not, is it's much more life positive, right? Yep. And so I think an argument can be made that these teachings have a certain unique resonance. And so, yeah, let's, uh, I'm I'm happy to start to begin thinking this through with you. Uh, do you have any other thoughts before I, I give it a shot? Oh, I have so many thoughts, but I want to, I really want to turn this to this, the kind of
0: direction right now, because in so many ways, you know, we have, I mean, I playfully talk about it now, a set of emergency teachings, emergency practices that we really can apply. And, And I have to say from my own perspective, and I'd love to hear from you both personally, and then in a broader perspective, I have found myself over the last five weeks as this virus crisis has just continued to explode around the world, Spontaneously taking uh, more and more refuge in these wisdom teachings, um, both both Buddhism and these you know nondual Shiva Shaiva Tantra teachings, and I find them to be personally of enormous applicability. And so I would like to hear from your end. Um, maybe we can start with a personal thing. If you're if you're okay going here, Ben, is how are you riding what's happening? The uncertainty, the anxiety, the fear. Um, around what's happening, how do these teachings inform and transform your relationship to what's happening and and bring um, a sense of stability and clarity and um, just understanding of what's actually happening now, both in yourself and in the world at large. So maybe let's start there. How has it affected you and where are you going personally for refuge to use these teachings Mm -hmm. to help you relate to this um, extraordinary situation?
1: Sure. Um, you know, the first thing I'll say is that I, I think a lot of what we're going through right now is, as, is unprecedented. I mean, we have the kind of emergency COVID state of emergency and, and isolation that we're all in. And we also have global warming as this kind of, <laughs> this yeah. other imminent thing right behind it. So we're, we're in a very kind of, um, novel existential situation as a species and I don't take any of it lightly. I mean, I think it's, it's something to explore and to be really humble about. There's a lot of complexity to every, all of these issues. And I don't have a sense of mastery per se, but these teachings permeate my life. And I think one of the ways that they have allowed me to orient and to respond and to, to become aware of what's happening Um, without kind of contracting automatically into fear is, is really their focus that on the fact that emotion and anxiety and are like our, the full embodiment of our humanity is exact is the kind of raw material, which uh, we are meant to work with in our sadhana in our path Mm -hmm. that we can work with that any state is workable yeah. that in fact it's in in great suffering and great fear and it's a great um unknowing it's in you know it's in um it's in great loss that we can actually tune into deeper processes of transformation when we go into those things and and don't try to like uh, find a, a mental framework to justify them or process them, when we can actually go directly into those energies. And and part of going into those energies um, is is starting to shift the basis of operation, to use one of Daniel P. Brown's terms, mm-hmm. the very basis of operation or the assumption of who we are in this process. And Shaiva Tantra presents you know, a radical shift in our very na- notion of who we are. Yeah. And also, and, and it's, as we've been, dis- you know, speaking earlier, more theoretically, it's a kind of radical inclusivism
0: yeah. that,
1: you know, it's like who we are includes includes so much more than we often think we are. And, yeah. yeah. No,
0: go, ahead. go ahead, please.
1: Yeah. So, um, so when i think when we start to when we start to kind of open up to this much deeper horizon of who we are in this process then there's a possibility to experience the very emotions the very thoughts the even the kind of feedback we're getting from our environment or through media and all those vibrations there's a there's a the capacity to experience them from a completely different perspective,
0: yeah,
1: and correct. yeah, that's that's like a fundamental thing. But go, yeah, go for it.
0: No, totally. I, I I mean, I'm so I'm sitting here just nodding my head. It's amazing. You know, a couple of things here, Ben. One is a, a teacher once told me, completely in in harmony with what you're saying, that um, with these kind of tantric skill sets with us, you know, obstacles really don't interrupt the path. Obstacles are the path. Mm-hmm. And and one of the maxims, as you know, in the tantric and even alchemical traditions, they're kind of Western analog, is the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that only becomes opportunity if, in fact, it's held within the crucible of right view. And so that's why I wanted to run for 40 minutes or so, creating to at least some, some um, slight degree, the extraordinary power of the right view. And also Ben, where I want to explore a little bit more where you're heading with this, because this is in fact where I find myself taking spontaneous refuge in exactly this issue of a deeper exploration of who, who we are. As, as you well know, you know, one of the central kind of approaches to Ramana Maharshi's entire trajectory was answering the question, who am I? And for me, really what, it, what I've explored here uh, using, uh, uh, principally Tibetan Buddhist frameworks, is that my threat, you know, in fact, it's very interesting. When I look at the aspect of me, when I look across the spectrum of my own identity, I find that if I am taking um, temporary refuge in the most superficial dimensions of my being, then that the result of that false level, mistaken level of identification, is in fact fear, disquietude, and uncertainty, because that outermost physical level is indeed threatened by this physical virus. But I identify that and also feel it with the sense of contraction. I mean, contraction to me is one of the foundational archetypes of the whole spiritual business, contraction, Mm -hmm. fresh openness. But what I find myself exploring then, and I'm curious if this is landing with your own um, path and it sounds like it, is that I'm sleeping pretty well. I generally find myself, taking more spontaneous refuge, not in the superficial dimension, but um, in some semblance of core identity. And and this is so incredibly helpful now because this core identity on a very deep level does not enter the domain of space and time. It's not subject to the vicissitudes of old age, sickness, and death. It's utterly vaccinated or immune Mm -hmm. to anything that occurs on the realm of form. And it is in fact, from that perspective, as you ended your last comments on, from that perspective, I find myself dispassionately, but yet compassionately, mm-hmm. bearing witness to what's happening in the world. And this gives me several things. One is a tremendous confidence and inner strength, tempered, or I should say applied immediately with, with a sense of deep empathy and, and compassion that mm-hmm. um, doesn't leave me hanging out. That's, again, the near enemy of these type of practices, these spiritual bypassing traps, where you can fall into what the Buddhists refer to, of course, is the trap of the arhat, where you just hang out in your own personal um, formless realm and you're not really applying your wisdom as compassion. I would argue that's incomplete wisdom because real wisdom spontaneously expresses itself as compassion. Mm -hmm. So, Talk to me a little bit about if that in fact resonates with you, if if that is where you find yourself going to to bring a sense of um, perspective and also ease and grace, perhaps with what's happening, does yeah. that resonate with your own experience.
1: It does, yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You know, one of the ways that the non-dual Shaiva tradition speaks about identity is that there's different thresholds or layers of the self. And there's this, there is this kind of uh, luminous, creative, uh, all-pervasive consciousness, which is ultimately non-sequential, which means it's, it's beyond time, or it's kind of everywhere at once, <laughs> uh, or it's at all times, you know? And that uh, uh, freely assumes contraction into, actually the void is one of the first contractions. And then the um, the mind, sorry, then the prana, then the kind of life force that animates the mind, and then the body. And so when we, if, you know, at a time like this, if if I'm identifying exclusively with my body or with my mind, then that is going to be inherently, uh, uh, I'm going to experience a lot of apprehension and anxiety and a lot of doubt and fear, absolutely, and and insecurity. Um, So I think there's this idea of like um, recognizing those thresholds of identity as being integral parts of consciousness of of the life of consciousness but just not making that the ceiling of what i'm identifying with
0: exactly
1: and so if it's not the ceiling and i'm not crystallizing or reifying who i am and and kind of you know in that act of contraction even while watching contraction happen you know even while being with contraction as a part of creative expression, right? Um, then one of the ways I've been experiencing it is that there's, that identity becomes more fluid. There's more fluidity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's, there's more of like, uh, there's more of, and that also allows for deeper empathy or, or connectivity to what's arising. As well, because it's not frozen into a particular container, and so it's it's you know more aware of what's happening in in the broader matrix of life and what's happening around me. That could be just in my own you know microcosm with my my university students who are suffering. That could be in my family. That can be with my friends, and that can be. And actually, what I've been experiencing lately, Andrew, is just a more sense of feeling for the world. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> Cause this is happening. This is such a global thing. Um, and you know, one, one of the way, one of the teachings, one of the things that Nondual Shaivism does, especially through the writing of Abhinavagupta, Gupta is it brings in theories of beauty into its understanding and, and the different genres of artistic performance, like plays and literature, and by by bringing these disciplines together, um, there's a way in which we can begin to see the universe as a great dramatic performance. <laughs> and this is what I Avinabagupta mean, describes it. It's it's like Shiva's grand play, right? It's the theater of consciousness. We're in the theater of consciousness. This has been actually a really powerful teaching for me because this theater involves every kind of story one could imagine. In fact, all stories are unfolding within it, including tragedies. And there's, I think there's a way of why do, when we see a tragedy that's a very poignant and powerful, why do we wanna see it again if it's a tragedy, right? Um, so part of the reason we we wanna see it again is because it actually opens us up to the universal nature of human experience and human emotion. We experience grief, not just related to my story or my life or this character's life, but we see grief as a broader tributary of the life experience. And when we see it in that way, it's beautiful, but it doesn't eclipse the grief. (laughs) So it's like, it's oriented towards a particularity to the play to the story but it's also inherently beautiful and moving because it's not limited to any one story it's a part of you could say like the life of a of a of an all-pervasive process that we are a part of in a very deep level so i i think you know i like this because then we don't fall subject to the near enemy of of just taking shelter in a transcendent self, and and then kind of negotiating from there. I mean, maybe that's step one, right. but there's a, I think a step two where that we start to experience that self permeating all of the other layers of self. And this is this is very Kaula. This is very Nandu Shiva. The the move is to to transcend and then to pervade the transcended. Exactly. The second movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's this. Yeah, there's this, there's this participatory nature or impulse, and its impulse is to relish the experience regardless of the genre or the, the emotional palette to actually find ways to get to the essence of the experience. The rasa yeah. Which is the term they use in the theatrical tradition.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, it's really, you know, my understanding of, and we can talk about this at a future session because yeah. th- these terms are so integral to the whole nocturnal trajectory, but, you know, the, the transition from Turiya to Turiya Tita. And, and the, way, the way I play with this, Ben, is, you know, you, you, um, in a certain sense, and it, it, the directionality is obviously arbitrary, but in a certain sense, you ascend to um, in the Buddhist term egolessness, selfless emptiness. Mm-hmm. But then again, you don't hang out there. And, and in a play on words, The your enlightenment is fundamentally incomplete. You're you're only partially there if that's where you hang out. So then here's a play on words. Then you pull a wicked U-turn where (laughs) the Y-O-Y-O-U turn where you then come back um, informed transformed by your wisdom. And then you return to the world of form that you um, uh, provisionally differentiated from. But now you do so voluntarily. And to me, this is the, the essence of yeah. the whole Gardo path. It's no longer involuntary incarnation driven by mm-hmm. karma. Right. It's voluntary incarnation driven by compassion. And this, mm-hmm. of course, is the basis of the whole tuku principle. And so to me, you know, the thing about the theory of beauty, Abhinavagupta, and the whole idea of, of play, I'm sure this is what you mean, but it's also a play without purpose, a play without end, because otherwise you have these issues of teleology and all these other right. traps that right. come into play. You know, is this yeah. a, a way to, to really define
1: Leela in its truest understanding? In this in this tradition they do use that term, yes. Or krida is another term. And yes, it's an it's an infinite play. Um you know there's there's some interesting theories on infinite games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's like that. I actually really appreciate that metaphor. It's it's not towards a particular result. It's not a game that you want to try to win or conquer. It's rather a game which is played solely for the purpose of play. And you know, this might actually be. I think there's a, there's a deep harmony with with these two traditions that we're both you know steeped in. Um, but you know, you do you don't have as much. In this U-turn, I like that a lot, by the way. (laughs) Why a U-turn? In this U-turn, yeah, you know, more broadly speaking, I think that is fundamental. We have to find a way to let go of these limited structures, but that's not the goal. There's this U-turn. And what is, one question for us, maybe a future dialogue is what is is animating that U-turn? Yeah, no kidding. You know, and, and the Shaivas don't emphasize compassion as much. Um, yeah, it's, it, it would not, be, yeah.
0: you know, it would be, it would be a, a, a spontaneous and, and therefore, you know, this is where it's interesting because um, play without purpose is, um, it doesn't create karma because it's not laden with intentionality. You're just doing it, quote unquote, for the heck of it. That's actually what defines play and contradistinction to things like, like competition. Right. And so, you know, when, when this is kind of sparked, we're really entering the domain of the ineffable, are we not? Where, where we could say that it's just the, you know, the kind of the, the actual spontaneous response ability, um, as, as our mutual friend um, Chris Wallace writes so beautifully about, that, you know, on, on a relative level, there's no such thing as free will but mm-hmm. on an absolute level there is only free will right and I think we're talking about that I yeah. think we're talking about a transcendent domain of will big W mm-hmm. yeah that is not born on any level of contraction or self-reference and therefore what happens in my experience yeah. and there is a way we can get a glimpse of this mm. provisionally through things like disaster and trauma where we're where forced by sensory impact to act Fundamentally the, the phraseology I use is is not on behalf of ourselves, but on and on, on behalf of reality. Mm-hmm. We become a representative of reality because in fact mm-hmm. at that point we are reality. Right. And, and so I'm not sure I can put words to it more than that because I really do think it at mm-hmm. that point it really does become ineffable. Yeah. But in the vocabulary that I've come yeah. to understand, that's one one way I play with it. But let's let's do this for our listeners, Ben. Sure. How can we Where's the praxis here? How can we embody this, practice it? So let's say, for instance, let's be really practical. Mm-hmm. Let's say we're listening to news and we're hearing about, you know, this just this horrific increase in deaths. When we are assaulted by these just heartbreaking images and, and we feel our heartbreaking and we start to weep, how can what we're talking about here um, be brought, uh, how can we turn that into a path without indulging it? how can we really bring this into a, a kind of a practice?
1: Can we try to zip it down into something like that? Sure, um, we can try. We can try, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, one of the maps for practice, and it's actually a term that you're deeply familiar with in Buddhism is upaya. Yeah. and. I think it's very helpful. Um uh, oh the initial response before I go into the upayas of Nandul shaivism is that you know I don't think there's any magical techniques <laughs> but rather there's a path of profound cultivation.
0: Hmm.
1: And the upayas is one map of that path but I don't you know like when I read these Shaiva traditions, I don't get the sense of like a simple 12 step program that's easily translatable into a consumable praxis. Right. You know what I mean? What I get a sense of is a kind of uh, some, uh, a path in which one dedicates their life energy, their breath, their mind, and their heart wholly to, in, in and through that dedication, there's this extraordinary alchemical process that begins to unfold that can be tracked as a path, right? Um, so, so with that said, you know, there's, there's the, uh, the way that Abhinavagupta speaks about it is a very subtle level of practices that he begins with right. to more outward practices that are based on our identification as an individual, embodied means, anava upaya. Um, and so I think he gives many different teachings on the embodied means. That's probably where we would all start from. Um, there's, of course, on the whole tantric ritual universe that initiates do, and that includes mantra, initiation, deity worship, etc. Um, and then there's a number of, uh, of really beautiful, subtle practices um, of working with the breath in mantra, and working with visualization, that um, are also part of that embodied means, and these are all practices based in action. That's the distinction. Um, and so, you know, I I there, I could list any number of practices. There's so many in Shavat Tantra, just as there's so many in the Buddhist traditions that you that you work with and study and practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, for for me, just the practice of seeing. The breath as a pulsation of the mantra mm-hmm. and kind of finding a way to just to tune my presence to the natural pulsation of my being without adding anything to it without projecting anything on it and then allowing giving space for what I'm hearing what I'm feeling my own conditioning my own fears to all just arise yep. without interpreting those things or or coming to conclusions about any of them and just you know with extraordinary patience just returning again and again to the simple presence and pulsation of my being within a deeper understanding from these teachings of the view right that i'm not kind of crystallizing what that is
0: yeah ben i think that's so critically important it's it's really as they say uh, in the Hevajra Tantra, you know, wisdom abides in the body. And mm. and for me, it is it is really mm. having the openness. And again, that's why I think it's so helpful to start with the view, um, to have the open heart mind and to understand that that when the divine play um, does in fact play itself out, sometimes it plays itself out in energetics that we append labels to like pain unwanted experience and the like but what i'm hearing you say here is that the invitation is in fact to stay embodied to stay with the feelings we're having in our body and in and i have to say my own experience doing that doesn't create karma Um, Mm -hmm. that may be the result of karma but actually having the wherewithal to use your body uh, as a crucible of transformation by allowing yourself to stay in the blast furnace of so-called unwanted experience, and therefore to establish a relationship to that, an open relationship to that, because in my experience, Ben, um, what tends to happen is these unwanted experiences arise, and you know, I think for many people, especially on the spiritual path, they often think that the spiritual path is, you know, it's just a subtle way about feeling good. It's not, in my opinion, it's not about feeling good. Yeah. Unless you talk about basic goodness, it's more about getting real. And and what this means then is, if I have an experience on my body that I that I just don't like, so what? Stay with that. Stay embodied with that. Feel that. That in itself, first of all, um, keeps you open to it. You kind of circumvent the contraction that would squirt you out of your body and into your head, where prapancha and balaka and all these things that, that we that you talk about come into play and the construction project of the ego then rapidly ensues. So I think in a very practical way, for me, it's waking down, staying in, in the heartbreaking feelings and allowing myself to in fact be part of that great tragedy, that great play in mm-hmm. all those permutations without try, trying to change the script, without trying to change the narrative and t- you know just be with that um that in itself to me is is foundational because from there then when i step forward and act i can do so with some sense of intelligence it's it's what i playfully refer to as as replacing reactivity with response ability and that doesn't create karma Mm -hmm. then i step out into the world and i'm not acting on my Mm -hmm. behalf my actions then become karmically free because they're no longer infected by intentionality but you know, mm-hmm. I can't I can't overstate in my own personal experience. The ability to say, to stay in the blast furnace, and as you know, mm-hmm. Suzuki Roshi once said so beautifully, you know, we should be a good bonfire. We should not be smoky mm-hmm. fires. You know, we should mm-hmm. this is my riff, we should cremate our experience as we live it. Mm-hmm. And the only way mm-hmm. you could do that wow. is by staying in that crematorium, which is really the the ferocity of the flames of the human condition altogether. So that's what I hear you saying here, and that's certainly the way I apply these methods.
1: Beautiful. That. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you're reminding me, a couple of things come to come to my heart as you're speaking, Andrew. One is, um, you know, there's this idea of the fire of consciousness, chid agni, which is very important in the Shaiva tradition. And there's this beautiful practice where you offer, in the same way in a in, you know, Vedic ritual, you offer oblations to the fire, you offer whatever's arising in your experience to the fire of consciousness. And you allow that fire of consciousness to fully digest and consume you know, in that experience and, and assimilate it. And so this is uh, described also as hatha or like spontaneous digestion of one's I mean, experience. And that, yeah, Christopher Wallace writes about this beautifully in recognition sutras, actually, and very practically. Um, and this is definitely the orientation. And uh, I do think that it's absolutely foundational. Another thing that came to mind is in this, there's this understanding in the Vijnana Bhairava that what is articulating the breath, like what the breath is, is, is actually an articulation or an expression of uh, the goddess consciousness, para, who in the end of the text, it's described as Kundalini, mm-hmm. often known as Kundalini. And what, what this is, is it's this infinite embodied intelligence that's animating our body in, our, in, in from in moment to moment. And it's her, it's that intelligence that we can understand as a goddess, which is breathing us in every single moment. And so when you start to see this, you start to see the breath as the mantra of that goddess,
0: yeah.
1: as the spontaneous pulsation of that goddess. And here it's the mantra that repeats itself. And the texts even say it repeats itself 21,600 times a day. You don't have to repeat it, (laughs) right? Or they, I don't know where they came up with that number because people breathe at different rates. But the idea is it's the mantra that is the resonance of the breath. And so how do we become completely naked to what we already are? Without, like you said, having to tell a story about it. Yeah. without, Without having to... You know, elaborate it, or comment on it, or crystallize clothe
0: it. Yeah, clothe it. Yeah,
1: clothe it. Yeah.
0: It's interesting in in Tibetan. You know, the word for for relative truth is kunzup which which literally means to clothe, to cover up. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful play, double entendre of the word habit. How our habits actually clothe um, mm-hmm. naked reality. Because sometimes it's it's too naked, it's too exposed it 's too vulnerable, it's too bright, um, mm. and, and so that's a fantastic thing. I, I had never heard that before. The breath is a mantra of the goddess, and that twenty one thousand six hundred times a day we we whisper this really irreducible mantra that um, you know the, the fundamental sound of silence that uh, you know we, we're, we have this capacity to tune into this constant, constant recitation. Oh, and that's just fantastic. Yeah. So when, yeah. Someone, when someone comes to you, that's and this is just another way to paraphrase perhaps what you've been talking about. So someone comes up to you and they're really in a difficult place. They're, they're not a practitioner. Um, and you find yourself in a position to offer the, some advice. What, what, you know, in a certain sense, what, what would be your, your irreducible instruction along those lines? What, what could you tell them Um, maybe it's just a mere kind of reiteration of what you just said but I want to leave our listeners with a handful of of very practical upayas, skill sets that they Mm -hmm. can start to Mm -hmm. engage in so does something else come to mind in terms of um, that kind of approach
1: sure I mean if if this person uh, was really asking me sincerely for advice (laughs) and I would never want to give it to someone who wasn't looking for it. (laughs) Yeah. Just to clarify that, um, you know, just to share something, you know, maybe we can go in this, in another conversation about Vikalpa. I think it's very important that, you know, just continually stay open to this, um, this amazing and, just a process of of reality and creation that's unfolding that we we're so blessed to participate in just remain open to it and don't close it down into a a conclusion um e- even if it's taking a really dark turn <laughs> to you know hang in there <laughs> uh you know there's because the more we can hang in there, and the more we can be with what's arising without um, without turning it into a particular narrative that we use to defend ourselves or to you know navigate it, um, I I think the more we'll just see the beauty and the potential of it of what's happening and. You know, that doesn't negate it being very difficult or even heartbreaking. It doesn't negate the full spectrum of, of emotions from wreaking havoc and do, and the maelstrom of emotions arising. It doesn't negate the, the real loss that's happening. But what it does is it allows us to connect with the kind of utter unconditional positivity and beauty at the heart of it all, yeah, yeah, and and even in our darkest moments, you know, like it's in a certain sense we have to we have to go there. You know, this is giving us an opportunity to go some really dark places uh, individually, yeah. individually and collectively. You know, and, and and like yeah, how do you orient towards that? Like, okay, this is an opportunity that we didn't have before because we were we were much more sheltered before. Now we're now it's being revealed, yes. right? Yeah.
0: What I thought about here, Ben, is this is really an interesting way to talk about the beauty that you were referring to earlier, from from the Dzogchen or Great Completion perspective. That on one level is unwanted, and again, that's already the culpa. That's already a commentary. But as as uncomfortable, unwanted as an experience can be, that it's it's fundamentally always completely pure and in fact complete. I mean, trunk Rinpoche once very famously said, there's no such thing as an underdeveloped moment, (laughs) or as as our friend Chris says, there's no such thing as a negative experience. And Mm -hmm. I think that that view alone is of extraordinary importance because then then again, you realize that this is part of the human comedy and tragedy and that Mm -hmm. the issue is not the, the display, the phenomenal display. There's nothing inherently problematic. In fact, more than that, According to these non-dual traditions, it's it's divine, it's perfectly pure. It's the play of mm-hmm. of, of Shiva or but the, the, whatever you want to call it. the problem The problem, therefore, if that is in fact the case, where's the issue? Well, the mm-hmm. issue is inappropriate relationship to that arising, and that's something we can control. That's right. something that armed with these tools, we have the ability to alter our narrative, which in many ways means just ceasing the narrative altogether, like like you're talking about. Altering yeah. the narrative, staying in in, in the blast furnace yeah. of experience, and realizing mm-hmm. that that in a certain sense has its own beauty. And it you know I'm a, a fan of word origins and etymologies, and mm-hmm. very interesting that um, the word "sad," its root comes from a root a word that fundamentally means satisfaction, as in fullness. Mm-hmm. And, and so to me, there's something really quite beautiful about what that points to. That yeah. that if we're able to stay with these un Untoward, disquieting states of body and mind, and do so with 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 full body courage. There's there's an inherent beauty, elegance to that. Not conventional beauty or elegance, mm-hmm. but it's really a work of art, in and of itself. If it's left in and of itself, and I think, of course, that's the hardest thing to do because mm-hmm. we always feel we're not human beings or human doings. We've got to do something about this. We've got to do something about that. And that of course does not in any way dismiss that in fact right now we really do need to do some things Mm -hmm. but more foundationally before we do we have to be and and i think these invitations are fundamentally to to just be human and then from that we'll i would say spontaneously know how to step forward and act because we're informed by this greater connection to reality so yeah so so ben talk to us a little bit more i I love where you're taking this Um, what other opportunities do you see here, without slipping into false positivism? Because there aren't there aren't opportunities here. You know, studies have shown that um, usually in stressful, adverse circumstances, the default is actually regressive. The default is contraction, defensive, offensive, and we're obviously seeing that a lot. So this kind of tra- this alchemical transformation we're talking about will not happen on its own because of the force of habit, karma, the momentum of the egoic agenda. But with that said, and you started to say something about this, what, what else do you see when you raise your gaze and um, look upon what's happening? What else? What other opportunities do you see being presented to us if in fact we're armed with wisdom traditions like these?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm reminded for some reason as you're speaking about uh, Frankl's, uh, the meaning, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you for know, sure. yeah. search for meaning, you know, he was using that older language of man, but, um, you know, he, he lived through concentration camp and came out the other side with this extraordinary, um, beautiful existential awareness about finding meaning, even in the where it seems like all meaning has died. <laughs> And he, he, I heard him speaking recently, I was watching a video of him. Uh, he's no longer alive, I don't think, but, is, is he alive? <laughs> I don't think so, but I'm yeah, not sure. Um, where he was speaking about uh, people in in parts of Western Europe where there's just extraordinarily high quality of life, but there's actually less meaning, and there's even, there's a greater tendency towards suicide. And, in some of the concentration camps he he was in, there was a much lower degree of suicide so I think I, I just say that because I think there's there's this opportunity for us to have a lot of our conventional comforts and ideals conventional you know ideals and securities and uh, that we that kind of hem our awareness and don't challenge us towards embodying more expansive or greatest greater modes of creativity conscious participation in the life process because they kind of lull us those a lot of those have now been popped um potentially and so i see i, I don't know like I, I see an opportunity for a a major transformation of humanity through this process and I think part of it is developing um, a more more intimacy with reality, maybe a, more of a ruggedness and um, and less complacency and, and maybe the ability to start to think globally, you know, like a kind of more of a planetary consciousness, um, just because this is forcing the issue. Right. This is, this is affecting us. It's, I mean, this is a great example of, of interconnection just through like the spreading of this virus, right? That we're, we're deeply, um, interconnected and woven into each other. And that the only way to really maybe step into a new threshold, an emergent threshold of, of embodied humanity or life itself, including non-humans, And maybe a a symbiotic relationship with the biosphere and beyond is is to begin to recognize at a very deep level the planetary, you know, this level of planetary reflection, and um, to see ourselves as interly woven into this process that is radiantly interconnected
0: yeah that i mean that could not be more beautifully said and 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 i i couldn't agree more i think that's one of the foundational issues it's almost again we don't want to get too kind of anthropocentric here sometimes Mm -hmm. i think it's facile to say that this is some kind of cosmic you know pox to clear humanity off the face of the earth i think that's pretty simplistic but i do think that i mean on basic ecological principles that um you know as they say pardon the french you know you can't um f with mother nature right because we're, we're part of the network and exactly. what what we yeah. do to others and it again the fact that this came what do they call it now zoonotics you know the fact that this came from the animal kingdom mm-hmm. in itself is a very potent thing because it shows our connections yeah. not only to the human um, species but to to the biosphere as you put it all together and it's yeah. To me, it's a, a really radical uh, reality concentrate. It's a wake up call mm-hmm. to um, the, the fact that we obviously are out of harmony, out of line. And if we relate in fact to it properly, and I think Ben, this of course is the massive challenge. Is, mm-hmm. is there enough um, kind of center of gravity of sanity to not put him Humpty Dumpty back together again, To yeah to realize that we can reconstruct in a way that hopefully will be in an entirely new direction and that's an open question for me i mean doctrinally Mm -hmm. with these teachings i have that kind of optimism but -hmm. practically i'm I'm still a little bit more guarded i wouldn't say skeptical but i'm definitely a little bit more guarded so what do you think with your with your crystal ball (laughs) (laughs) i mean do we have the capacity um, to use this in, in these ways and, and really connect to the to the rest of the biosphere, or are we just kidding ourselves when we make these proclamations? <laughs> you
1: know, my my initial my initial sensibility about it is very uh, akin with what you just expressed. I think we have the capacity. Uh, I would never say we don't have the capacity, but I, I'm you know when I rationally look at the power of habit in the And the fact that we need emergency in order to take responsibility for our impact on this planet right yep. uh, and that if if it's not imminent and global warming is the in, in the ecological crisis is the perfect example if it's not radically imminent, then it somehow we can just conveniently forget it sure, <laughs> and you can go back to sleep right so I I don't know the answer to that question. Like, I I don't, I I guess I don't lean on one or the other in terms of um, a prophetic vision (laughs) or like a future, uh, uh, charting a certain future. But what I would say, to say something, is that it would be a much better story and a much more fulfilling creative move to give it everything we have <laughs> to make that happen, to make to to revise and to not go back to a status quo, to to embrace this and to see this as a catalyst and to harness these traditions, which I think introduce this possibility for a, a deep awakening to a, a transpersonal self. Right. And and in fact, that it does seem to be a clarion call from the environment, from other species, as you the way you put it, you know, there, this is a clarion call for us to wake out of the wake out of the dream of our destructive relationship or our, our as Terence McKenna puts it, our lethal cultural adaptations, which are creating an attack on the on the biosphere. To, and so, whatever you know, Shaivism, uh, Nandal Shaivism, the Kaula traditions, Dzogchen, right? For for us, I think we see this extraordinary way forward, this extraordinary potential to decenter uh, anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism, right? Yep. And and. And why not just kind of go for it and and experience the fullness of it all, really go into the bonfire, <laughs> it, 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 regardless of w- knowing what the outcome is.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: You see, like there's something there that I really appreciate. And I think I, that spirit for me comes from a more evolutionary orientation, you know, evolutionary spirituality, which is, is also a big part of my path. And I think it, it's resonant with the kind of, Non dual Shaivism, but I, I see myself as a evolutionary, uh, n- non dual, panentheistic <laughs> uh, scholar practitioner. So,
0: yeah, I, I think anything really, I'm loving what you're saying, Ben, because anything that, that challenges the supremacy of centrism, centricities on any level, because centricity really. Oh, which which basically manifests in all these isms of which there are countless is is really uh, Yet another iteration of this contraction principle Mm. Anytime we contract We're we're going to be unless we do so voluntarily we're heading towards um, kind of egoic Inappropriate relationships and to me It's it's really interesting. You know the buddha sometimes I hear and it's a Sanskritist, maybe you can um, Help me here. Sometimes I i've heard the the name translated not just the awakened one but also the opened one, mm-hmm. the, the one who opens, and this again ties in to the app to the nocturnal practices that we're doing with our um, nightclub site is you know, opening the aperture of awareness, um, opening the aperture of our own heart mind to mm-hmm. um, see things in, in a much more comprehensive, complete, and open way that includes our experience within the larger domain of reality altogether. And whatever um, can be done to challenge that, whatever crowbar virus or or whatever nuclear attack that can take place that dislodge us from all these extreme forms of centricity, Mm -hmm. I think can be of tremendous value. Um, And then again, just even understanding that will be helpful because then we realize that when our comfort zone is being challenged, that's just our centricity being challenged and um, uh, if we have the courage to see it as that then we'll understand what's being invited and then eventually if it's not just invited it will be demanded um, and in a certain sense i think that's part of the level of feedback you know the larger the more asleep we are the larger and the louder the alarm clock has to be and right now the alarm clock's getting pretty loud because we're pretty damn asleep so hopefully this can be a little bit of a wake up call. So my dear friend is, is we start to wind this thing down. A couple of quick things. One is I, I started asking this question a couple of decades ago and I dropped it for a while, but I've returned to it because I find it is it, a wonderful way to, to summarize um, bullet points, certain things. And obviously there's some challenges here, but the question I want to pose to you is as follows. You know, if, if you were to realize that you only had a minute left to live, what would be the irreducible expression of your teaching?
1: Mm. Wow, <laughs> what, a, what a poignant question. <laughs> and I mean, the first word that emerges is love. Oh, beautiful. And I was recently reading with Christopher Wallace, our friend, this passage and it describes the union of Shiva and Shakti. So, like the light of consciousness and its capacity to become aware and to manifest and to create. And when and so the kind of transcendence and the imminence What is this possibility of them actually being one? <laughs> I says, "Well, what is this union?" He says, "Sneha iti abhitiyate." It's called love. And it's a it's, it's very rare passage. We don't find this terminology used that often. But, I mean, that's the, for me, that's the irre, irreducible nature of, of what we're a part of here. And that would be my immediate response. You know, it would be a, probably a mixture of, of love and just complete gratitude for, yes. for having the chance to exist at all. For all of this existing at all as all a kind of you know an, a sense of awe and gratitude that's just shot through with love yeah
0: oh my friend that touches my heart i think it's so beautiful and, and i really for me it's it's very much the same you know in the buddhist tradition it's very funny um we don't talk about this four letter word that that often you know we talk about in the great we talk about bodhicitta we talk about maitri we talk about karuna and actually you know this is what I'm working on lately. I think one of the funniest ways that Buddhism talks about love, and this is a whole uh, topic of conversation for the next time we come around. One of the funniest ways that Buddhism talks about love is using the word emptiness, because mm-hmm. I think if you really take a very close look at emptiness, mm. it's fullness. It's it's really the fabric of love. And mm. um, I I'm just touched by this landing point for you um mm. it certainly is resonate with my own experience and so how can people two things how can people learn more about um abhinavagupta Temaraja, the the cashmere masters and the like where mm. can you direct people what are your some of your go-to sources so people can say wow this stuff is really cool i want to learn more where, where can they go to learn more about this i know you offer your own course which i'm going to plug we're going to put a link to that Uh, But where else can people go to learn about this extraordinary uh, wisdom body?
1: Sure, sure. There's a lot of great sources. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the academic literature is very technical and, and um, in the in light of that technicality, it kind of makes it seem less accessible. But um, there's the scholar practitioner Christopher Wallace or Harish Wallace, who we've mentioned a few times, he has two books, which are really translating these traditions and making them accessible to practitioners and so the first is tantra illuminated and the second is called recognition sutras i highly recommend both those books i actually use them in my teaching at Naropa university especially for undergraduates because it really does this amazing work of bringing these traditions alive and that's one of the things that both of us in our collaborations are deeply dedicated to. We've, we have, we've been reading together now for three years, so um, there's been some nice collaboration there. Um, another basic resource is Mark Dykzkowski's books. He's written a lot on this tradition that we didn't touch upon. How do you spell uh, his last name for our listeners? Uh, uh, it's difficult. D-Y-C-K-Z-O-W-S-K-I, I yeah, think. Close <laughs> D- <enough. laughs> D- yeah, Mark Dykzkowski. Um he has written a lot of books on this tradition called the Spanda tradition which speaks about ultimate reality as this kind of creative pulsation. Um based on the Spandakarikas the stanzas on Spanda he's also written a beautiful book on called the aphorisms of Shiva yep. which is on the Shiva sutras. His writing is is another really kind of powerful point of access. Um and finally yeah you mentioned this program i mean if if this is something that one would want to actually do graduate level study. We're launching a master's in yoga studies and at Naropa University in the fall. It's low residency. It can be taken from anywhere in the world. And it includes a training in the Sanskrit language. So a, a kind of a foundational training that can open the archive of these texts so you can actually begin to read them and study them and work with them in the original. And it also involves a, a deep... A comprehensive curriculum in the history of yoga. And it has a, a section which is dedicated to the history of tantric yoga. And it's, it's something that differentiates the program as we go very deep into the history of tantra, you know, something we've just touched upon in our conversation today. Um, I teach in that program. I've kind of co-created that program at Naropa. And we're inviting a lot of different faculty from um from like leading scholars in tantra and in yoga to be guest faculty to teach in it oh, wow. so it's uh that's another opportunity for studying obviously at a much more uh, advanced level and you know that commitment um yeah other than those um if if you're brave you can look at all of the writing of alexis sanderson
0: oh yeah of course
1: if, if you're brave uh right. <laughs> if you if you're, if you're somebody who feels confident with academic styled prose <laughs> right. Right. um his his work is is just absolutely phenomenal uh he's he's the doyen yeah he's the man. of the history of Shaivism. he's the gatekeeper he's trained a generation And he's a genius. I mean, he's, he's just a rare mind and intellect, and he was trained directly by one of the living, last living masters in Kashmir, Swami Lakshmanju. He read with him for seven years at his feet and became fluent in Sanskrit. Um, And so he, he has this deeply intimate understanding of the tradition and has ex- radically expanded our understanding of the history of it as well. And he's also worked a lot on the relationship between early Shaivism and Buddhism, which is another topic to look at. Tantric forms of Shaivism and Buddhism. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah he's, he's the guy. Yeah, you know, um, Chris, obviously mutual friend. I, I'm, I'm definitely gonna ping him to try to get him online because I couldn't agree more. I think his, his two books, Tantra Illuminated and Recognition Sutras in particular, are, are really quite seminal, seminal offerings these days. Um, and these other texts, of course, I'm going to be personally exploring myself. So, my dear friend, what a delight. Next time I bring you back, I already have a list of what I want to talk to you about. I want to really come back and explore this somewhat opaque term, non-duality. And mm. what does that really mean? Um, I, I find myself, I used to, you know, I call myself a Buddhist, of course. That's just um, for purposes of convenience, but I shifted from a Buddhist to a curious. You know, I'm just someone who's curious about the nature of mind and reality. But if I'm pushed into a corner, I find myself now saying, I used to think, well, I'm an idealist, blah blah blah. I'm a non-dualist, and and I would really love to explore with you what 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 does that mean? What is non-dual thinking? What's a non-dual action? Um, what does it really mean? And so. Let's do this again. I, I personally, every time I talk to you, I learn so much. You're such a tremendous resource. And I can't wait to, to bring you online again to learn um, more from you, my dear friend. But between now and then, big thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend with us. Um, keep your hands clean and uh, <laughs> keep your heart clean and continue with the amazing good work that you're doing. You're, you're bringing tremendous benefits to this world. So thank you, dear friend, for your time.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. Just a delight to talk with you and, and have this chance to connect. And I just also want to say that I really appreciate your clarity, precision and articulation of a lot of these things. And I've always learned from our conversations as well. So the oh, feeling yeah. is in that sense. Yeah,
0: yeah it's, it's, it's very generous of you to say that. I totally feel mm-hmm. the same way. So all the best to you, my friend. We'll stay in close touch and, uh, touch and we'll definitely do it again. All the
1: best. All the best. Thank you.